Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, October 4th. We begin with the latest on the UCP leadership race with the vote taking place this Thursday. While polls indicate Danielle Smith is a front runner, does she appeal to Albertans or just the UCP faithful? We discuss with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Ukrainian forces continue to push back Russian invaders as protests and unrest continue across Russia. And there's renewed talks surrounding the possibility of Vladimir Putin turning to nuclear weapons in the conflict. We get the latest from Marcus Kolga, founder of disinfowatch.org. According to Stats Canada, more than 70,000 cyber crimes were reported to police in 2021. And it's not just financial institutions and large companies being targeted. We'll discuss what you need to know to protect yourself online with cybersecurity expert Kevin Dawson. And finally, it's Tech Tuesday. Following a series of announcements from Apple last week, it's now Google's turn. We catch up with the gadget guy Mike Yanni for details on the latest smartphone offerings from Google. Does Danielle Smith appeal to more Albertans than just the UCP faithful? Joining us to talk about the latest episode of the West Block on Global TV is host and Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Hi, Mercedes. Hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us. The The race for the UCP leadership, obviously in the home stretch. And this week you spoke with pollster Janet Brown about Danielle Smith particularly. Does she believe, uh, Janet Brown, that Danielle can appeal to all Albertans? Well, she doesn't believe that um, if Ms. Smith can do that, she's doing it now. She argues that, in fact, she thinks the race as it has been run uh, has been damaging to UCP party brand. She says that um, she believes, according to the polling she's doing, it doesn't reflect what most Albertans are thinking about, um, which is sort of practical things like gas and the expense of living. Uh, She says, you know, Alberta sovereignty is not high on a lot of people's lists uh, and some of the other topics that Ms. Smith has, has chosen to focus on. So her argument as a pollster is what she's seeing is that what the campaign has been about um, is what she believes sort of a, a niche uh, and very focused group of not just UCP supporters, but maybe people who didn't vote before are interested in hearing about. But she doesn't believe that it is a broader reflection of what most Albertans are are thinking about and talking about. And she actually thinks it's giving the NDP a better chance of winning. All right. If, for example, Danielle is the successful candidate, did uh, Janet uh, indicate any, uh, uh, I guess, process that she could use or follow to to gain uh, some solidarity within the party and bring the party back together? Well, there's a few things you have to do um, if you want to bring a party back together. And we're watching it happen with the federal conservatives right now, too, because it was a really nasty, divisive race. And, of course, um, they basically backstabbed their last two leaders and took them out themselves. It wasn't the liberals who did it. Uh, it was the conservatives. So one is you have to be able to put some of the people from another side on your front benches or into positions of power uh, or at least not alienate them. Mm-hmm. You need to listen to everyone in the party. You need to sit down with them. But that's how you keep the party together. Uh, how you deal with an actual general election, which is a very different scenario. You have to be able to make a transition um, in any party, frankly, from the leadership to the general election, because 
people who belong to parties uh, associate with that in a way that is stronger than the average Canadian. The average Canadian does not hold a political party membership. So you have to convince people who maybe aren't sure about who to vote for or don't vote the same way every time um, or are open to hearing new things that you hear their concerns, you can do something about their concerns, and you're the best possible candidate. Mm -hmm. And in that case, she will have to transition to a broader issue base uh, and addressing those issues, Janet Brown thinks, in a way that Albertans feel um, is is perhaps more broadly consistent with their approach. Whether or not she does that um, is a whole other question. And you can go too far and lose the party if you transition too much into the concerns of uh, others, or you can not go far enough and find that, yeah, you're super, super popular with your own base, but it's not enough to get you elected when you have to face the polls. And, you know, it's funny you say that, uh, in, that Janet Brown was thinking that the NDP was gaining some traction because of all of this and, and the, you know, the topics that Danielle's been focusing on. And, and we certainly hear that a lot here, too. Now, Danielle also, Danielle Smith says that she will not alter Alberta's next general election. That's an interesting one. I don't know if you were getting into that or is that a little more recent conversation as to, you know, why that might be. So we didn't um, have a chance to get into that, especially because we we had to pre-tape this interview with the long weekend last weekend. But I I think it's really interesting to sort of watch what's being said and the political calculus and and to see um, what happens with that political calculus in in the coming days. And especially uh, if Ms. Smith wins and is sworn in as premier, what do we see then? Uh, because in all honesty, and, and I know this is why a lot of people don't like politicians, but it's often the truth. What they say in the leadership race is not what they say in office. Mm-hmm. Um, it may well be. It may well be for Danielle Smith, um, but it could be that she just completely stops talking about certain issues too. Yes, we'll see. we got things to play out coming up. <laughs> yeah, uh, switching sure. gears a bit, you also had the chance, Mercedes, to speak with author and Kremlin critic Bill Brower about the, the rebellion and protests that we've been seeing in Russia. How serious uh, should we take these uh, protests that we're seeing? So he doesn't think it's a sign that um, the collapse of Russian power is in any way imminent. Um, however, and, and he points to the number of people fleeing the country versus rebelling. And, and he said, you know, like if people were staying to fight against their own government instead of trying to get on planes so that they're not drafted, uh, which he has very little sympathy for. He's saying, you know, why don't you stay and stand up to the regime? Um, then he doesn't really think that's the sign of sort of an imminent collapse of Putin or an imminent collapse of the Kremlin. Interestingly, what he, he did talk about, though, was how critical this is for Putin. His entire existential legacy is tied up in this. And because of that, the limits to which he is willing to go to win whatever parts of this war he believes are critical, and and most of the experts when you talk to them don't believe that's all of Ukraine, um, but it's Crimea and Luhansk and these other areas that he has, you know, quote-unquote annexed in completely sham referendums where soldiers literally showed up at people's doors with a rifle in their hand and a ballot in the other and told them to vote, um, and that, that he will try to go to sort of, I wouldn't say any length, because we've talked about nuclear, but mm-hmm. that is that is possible, um, that, that he is really willing to go to extraordinary and extreme lengths and, and push the limits to try to stay in power. And it, with the war sort of heading back into um, a winter time and dealing with conscripts, he's going to have a very complicated situation there. I mean, I was 
in Ukraine uh, in the late winter, early spring. Um, no cold. I looked around and thought, like, wow, there's parts of this that look just like Canada. Um, and, and the weather in some parts is quite similar. If you're talking about recruits who've been sent into the, well, not even recruits, conscripts who've been sent into the field without proper equipment, without winter gear, um, it's going to get very, very hard. But Bill Browder's take is basically that, you know, he will use these troops as cannon fodder and he will just continue to throw people at the problem because he can't because there's such a big population in Russia. And Mercedes, because I know that he also talked about, you know, what ultimately would happen to Putin should he lose power in Russia and losing this war would, you know, could eventually lead to that. And and Browder said that, you know, ultimately it, it would not look good nor be good for Putin himself, right? Yeah, he, he basically said Putin's dead um, if if he, he doesn't win in Russia. Um, his take is, and, and, you know, he's a very well-known Kremlin critic who, who has studied this for years, if you lose something like a war that big, it is over for you, um, and it's not necessarily your choice. That there, there's very serious repercussions to pay for that. And he was talking about even in the oil and gas sector. I asked him about uh, all these oligarchs that have been dying. Like, is it connected to Putin? What is it? He basically said, no, they're killing each other because there's less oil and gas now, so there's less profit, so they're taking each other out, um, so that there's fewer of them. This is what happens when there is money or power in the current Russian regime. People get killed for it. Um, so certainly, if Vladimir Putin takes that country to war and they view that as humiliation, not just the end of Putin's political career. Bill Browder believes that would be the end of his life. Wow. Just a crazy time and lots to cover. Thanks for your time this morning, Mercedes. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Russia illegally annexed four regions of Ukraine at the end of last week. And at the same time, Ukraine is seeking to fast-track joining NATO. Joining us to talk about the latest on the war in Ukraine is Marcus Kolga, founder of DisinfoWatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute's Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Good morning to you, Marcus. Thanks for being with us again. Good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so first of all, let's just start with Ukraine trying to get into NATO. They're fast-tracking or trying to fast-track membership. How likely is this to happen? Uh, you know, I think it's uh, they're trying to send a message to Russia that uh, there are several NATO nations that are open to uh, having Ukraine join uh, NATO. But uh, I think at this point, it's, it's, it's sort of unlikely while this conflict is, is simmering. Um, I think that's more of a, a distraction, in, again, targeting the, the Russian government, trying to throw them off their game. But uh, I don't think there's any serious chance of, of Ukraine uh, joining NATO, uh, certainly not, not, not in, the, in the next few months and certainly not within the next year. All right. Uh, let's talk about that Russian referendum on the annexation of the four regions of Ukraine. Window dressing, is that what we can continue, uh, consider this, Marcus, as far as, you know, Putin trying to uh, put a falsified message toward his people? Yeah, I mean, window dressing is a very uh, light way of putting it. I mean, this is this is hardcore, sharp propaganda that is uh, intended to deceive the Russian people, to make them believe that Vladimir Putin has at least made some gains in Ukraine, has a few victories to celebrate. And we certainly saw this massive uh, sort of uh, Nazi era Nuremberg style rally that happened in Moscow over the weekend to celebrate these uh, these annexations, which, as you mentioned, were legal. Um, referendums were held uh, in those territories. Or actually, we can't call them referendums. They were, uh, you know, they were sham elections. They were sham referendums. Uh, the outcomes were predetermined, and anyone who 
Uh, there were reports that anyone who did participate in those uh, referendums did so at gunpoint. So there is no validity to any of these referendums. And what they're intended to do, as I mentioned earlier, was to is to demonstrate to the Russian people that Vladimir Putin has made some sort of gain, uh, but also to uh, escalate the situation, potentially escalate the situation. Um, Vladimir Putin has repeatedly stated that any attack on Russia's borders uh, would be met with, uh, you know, uh, the most extreme responses, including the use of nuclear weapons, um, by creating this false border. And it should be mentioned that those borders that he's created through this sham referendum, I mean, Russia doesn't even control most of these territories. They're actually retreating uh, out of those territories. Um, but he may use this as a justification, the, the uh, Ukrainian advances that are being made today, to engage in some sort of limited nuclear warfare. We can't rule that out. Um, we've seen his barbaric use of weapons of mass destruction in places like Syria before, the constant shelling of civilian infrastructure, schools and hospitals in Ukraine. That's been happening uh, throughout the past seven months. So, as I said, uh, we can't rule out his use of tactical nuclear weapons. It's unlikely he'll use major nuclear weapons against Europe or any other country, but he may use them in Ukraine. So we need to be very alert to that and uh, figure out some sort of a response because any use of nuclear weapons deserves a, a significant response. Yeah, I, I, that's what I wanted to ask you about because you mentioned the word escalate. That obviously is clearly what he's trying to do, uh, Putin. So we know now as uh, an article from the National Post saying that a convoy has been spotted transporting equipment for Russia's nuclear weapons program. And they fear that it's, if nothing else, it's a signal to the West that he's very serious about it. So, I mean, what can be done? The Western nations have been very clear about saying they're not going in, but does nuclear issue, does, does the nuclear issue change that? Well, look, Sue, this, this guy's a, a schoolyard bully. That's all Vladimir Putin is. Um, and he's using this to scare us. He's using uh, nuclear weapons to scare us so that we uh, uh, end our support for Ukraine, uh, you know, come to the negotiating table and, and uh, grant him some concessions. He's trying to scare Ukraine with uh, this nuclear saber rattling. So I think that this transport, this, you know, uh, unverified sort of report of, of train loads of nuclear weapons being taken to the front uh, is a, a, a propaganda tactic. It's meant to uh, psychologically um, uh, stoke fear amongst Ukrainians. And, and uh, you know, I think Vladimir Putin's hope is that this will slow down Ukraine's incredible advances that are, that are, you know, they're making gains hour by hour at this point. And Russia's defenses, quite frankly, the conventional defenses uh, in uh, southern Ukraine are just simply collapsing at this point. Mm -hmm. So he needs to engage in this sort of, uh, you know, aggressive saber-rattling, fear-mongering in order to make some gains. And I think that, you know, we need to resist this. Um, again, we can't rule out his use of tactical nuclear weapons. But, you know, we need to uh, remember that Vladimir Putin's primary motivation in all of this is to remain in power as long as possible. Using any sort of large-scale nuclear weapons, even tactical nuclear weapons, is suicidal for Vladimir Putin because it will elicit a major response from the Western NATO nations and from Ukraine. Uh, there are uh, unverified reports that the U.S. has warned Vladimir Putin that if he does engage in any sort of nuclear warfare, that uh, NATO will respond by taking out its, uh, Russia's forces in Ukraine and its navy in the Black Sea using conventional means. Um, and so Vladimir Putin re uh, realizes this. He knows that there will be dire consequences if he goes to the nuclear option. So 
Um, I think at least he, but certainly those around him who want to remain alive and in power will probably resist any sort of uh, attempts to go nuclear. Regardless of of whether that next step is taken, uh, Marcus, are we seeing the end of uh, Putin's regime? Is there any way out for him to to survive this and to, you know, continue on as, as the leader? Look, there are two options for Vladimir Putin. Stop. Uh, retreat your forces to the uh, 1991 borders, uh, uh, allow Ukraine to retake Crimea, perhaps then there may be a chance that he will be able to remain in power, Um, but it's unlikely. Uh, I think that the losses that Russia has suffered over the past seven months, there are over 60,000 soldiers who have been killed. The mobilization that is happening right now is extremely unpopular in Russia. Hundreds of thousands of young Russian men have fled Russia. Um, I think that the oligarchs who have supported Vladimir Putin over the past 22 years, the intelligence and security services are all questioning, you know, I I would guess that they're questioning Vladimir Putin's sanity at this point because of the severe nature of those losses. Mm. Uh, And if there's, there's one thing that Russians won't tolerate, it's a loser. And Vladimir Putin right now is looking like a very much like a loser. And so I think that, uh, you know, if we continue pushing and supporting uh, Ukraine, if we continue holding on to the sanctions, applying more sanctions on Russia, I think that we might see the end of Vladimir Putin within the next six to 12 months, maybe two years. But this is certainly the beginning of the end. Love getting your perspective. Thanks so much for joining us, Marcus. Appreciate your time. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Marcus Kolga, founder of disinfowatch.org. That's the website, disinfowatch.org, and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Are you cyber savvy? October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and joining us with some insight and tips that we all likely need and helping keep us safe online, Kevin Dawson, president and CEO of ISA Cybersecurity. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Sue. How you doing? Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us to try and keep us safe because it seems these cyber criminals get smarter and smarter. If only they would use their, their intelligence for good. But a recent poll found almost half of Canadians are worried about falling victim to cyber crime. So do you have some couple of tips for us, maybe anything, any advice to help us out here? Absolutely, yeah. And we recently did a, a survey on this uh, of the secondary, post-secondary students across Canada and uh, for, for, for regular listeners, uh, a couple of the, the tips that stand out for me that, uh, that we're always promoting is um, definitely don't overshare information on social media. You know, the, the platforms are, are very easy and it's, it's very um, enticing to do so, but pets' names, important dates, addresses, personal items in the background of your pictures on social media or on, on videos you do, all of these things can be used to guess passwords and uh, help these, these cyber criminals develop convincing phishing emails and or steal your identity. Um, use multi-factor authentication wherever possible. You, you'll see it with some of your bank apps. Uh, most of them now support it, so, so use that whenever possible and create very strong uh, passwords or phrases and never reuse a password. Uh, kind of what happens is, is these hackers compromise one site, steal a password, and then they reuse it on other accounts and, uh, and, and try to use it. So those are a couple of the, the, the quick tips I would have for, uh, for users. You know, it's interesting, Kevin, in that we can't give you the typical cyber 
um, crime in the sense or, or cyber phishing scam because they change so often. Is that part of the puzzle? Is, you know, just when you think, oh, I won't r- respond to a CRA email, here comes another scam. Absolutely. Um, we see it all the time, and, and it's based on uh, a lot of things that are fresh in the news, um, uh, scams leveraging those things that are content that people want to hear about. Um, and obviously make, make your jobs more difficult because you're trying to put out information and then the, the criminals take that same information and, and try to use it to, uh, to get others to, to click or, or listen or, or, or answer questions. So um, the, the, the tactics are, are similar. Email still, still is the, the number one, uh, I guess, vector. Um, but uh, but the the messages themselves and, and the way they're coming at them is is different. But it's not all doom and gloom. Um, there's a, there's a lot of us fighting back. Um, ISA Cybersecurity, in, in conjunction with uh, our, our primary partner IBM Security, um, help a lot of institutions and, and schools and, and corporate customers elevate their posture and, and help respond with resilience, speed, and accuracy. Glad you're doing that, Kevin. And, you know, uh, one of your fellow internet techs just texted in, Stephen, and said, everyone also needs a good antivirus, no matter what operating system you're using. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And it goes beyond antivirus. It's, um, it's, it's now called EDR, MDR, Endpoint Detection Response, which are, which are the next generation of, of antiviruses that, uh, that help uh, discover things that are, that are not signature-based or not sitting there... Uh, um, uh, on a file and on your on your end on your desktop in in an antivirus uh, type solution. So, absolutely, uh, endpoint endpoint protection is is critical for most users. Kevin, it you seemed to be in the headlines back in the day. It was organizations, government, maybe banks that were targeted for cyber crimes when it comes to businesses and and organizations. But the the big ones, small businesses, are they at risk? And and are small businesses doing enough to protect their businesses? Um, small businesses are definitely risk, and I, I think small businesses, much like uh, some of the education, uh, kind of fall under the same same profile in the fact that they they don't have the extensive budget and and wealth that uh, that a lot of big companies have. So it's hard for them to to stay on top of the latest technologies uh, practices. It's often hard for them to hire or attract or retain um, the best cybersecurity talent. Um, so they're definitely uh, they're definitely at risk. Nobody is is outside of the uh, the domain of, of cyber hackers, and uh, it's all a matter of, of what they can gain. Kevin, question for you because this is one I, I I don't quite understand why they're doing it, what they gain from it. But you see a lot of um, well false messages on Facebook Messenger from people saying, "Hey, you know, I saw you in this video. Is this you?" or something like that. But it seems a lot come across Facebook Messenger. Why is that? What are they after? Um, they're after they're just leveraging the platforms that are available that people are are likely to click on and and ultimately they're they're looking to start a dialogue they're looking to get somebody engaged so oftentimes those Facebook messengers are other people's accounts that have been compromised and they're leveraging those accounts um, to to actually uh, go after Facebook friends or other people and ultimately they're trying to start a dialogue so that they will send something that you will either click on or go to. Um, or uh, pick up a phone call and, and, and do something to your own detriment. And, and that's primarily what they're doing. It doesn't matter the platform today, and, and they're going after any platform that they can where they can, they can hide behind uh, anonymity. Kevin, thanks for your time. It's scary stuff, and uh, like I say, always changing, so we appreciate the update. No problem. Thanks, Sue. Thanks, Andy, and happy Cybersecurity Awareness Month. You too. Thank you.
if we should go for lunch or what to celebrate. He's buying. Oh, okay. As Kevin Dawson, president and CEO of ISA Cybersecurity, you can find out what he does and more of what he does online at isacybersecurity.com. First, it was Apple, and now it's Google's turn. Smartphone season is in full swing, and our gadget guy, Mike Yanni, has what we need to know about this week's big Google announcement, plus why we may start seeing younger versions of our favorite actors in upcoming movies. Hmm? Good morning to you, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Hey, th- we'll start off with Google, and we'll let people know you do have a very sore throat. So thanks for joining us this morning. It may sound a little rough, but you've always got the great tech news for us. So, so what's up with Google? <laughs> Yeah, fighting the first cold of the season, and it's a, it's a doozy. It's a doozy. But, yeah, let's talk some tech. Uh, Google making their big announcements on the 6th of this week. And, of course, you know what? They're expected to focus on smartphones. They have the Google Pixel, so they'll be talking about the Google Pixel 7. And there's probably going to be two versions. The 7 is probably going to be a pro. And, you know, once again, I think they're going to focus on cameras. That's what people really want now. It's all about the camera. It's all about creating content. So they'll focus on that. I don't think there's going to be anything too crazy. Maybe some small increments in uh, processing and things like that. Maybe a foldable Pixel phone. I don't think it's going to happen this year, but there's always buzz about uh, foldable phones. Um, but what's interesting is you know, Google's a little bit more robust than Apple because it, Google has their fingers in everything, right? Um, you know, they have a smartwatch as well. I think they're going to make a real, try to real make a go of their smartwatch this year and try to really go up against Apple. And I think they have something up their sleeve that's going to actually allow their Google Pixel Watch to compete with Apple's lead on the Apple Watch. I think it's going to focus on fitness like we've never seen before. And, of course, you know, expect other hardware. Google owns Nest now, so get ready for more devices there. You know, probably a new video doorbell, possibly some new routers for the home. So I think they have a lot to announce this week. All right, lots of choices for consumers, if nothing else, Mike. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's talk entertainment. And uh, when it comes to movies, we are no strangers to CGI, what they can do with computer graphics. But now it might even be so convincing that you might not realize you're not watching a human. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this. You know, in the past, we've seen uh, movies where, you know, somebody has unfortunately passed away, an actor or an actress, and they have to CG their face to complete the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine watching an entire movie knowing that your favorite actor or actress isn't even in it. It's just a digital likeness. And this is being done now already overseas. Apparently, Bruce Willis, he, you know, officially retired from acting earlier this year. He has now given his permission for a company overseas to use his likeness to create deep fake movies. So not only will they be pasting his digital face over top another actor, this is interesting, you also might see a younger version of Bruce Willis. Because they did this last year for a movie, I believe it was not a movie, a commercial in Russia, and they used Bruce Willis in his 30s. And it was completely convincing. So the idea is, the thought is, we could see more of our, our favorite actors when they were younger. That's weird. And you say Disney just brought, bought James Earl Jones's voice as well. Very crazy. I don't want to let you go without talking about YouTube Premium. What's this? Yeah, you know, I, I love YouTube because it's free. And I think that's what everyone loves about it. That's what makes it unique. Uh, but they're testing out a new feature now where if you want to watch 4K content, you have to subscribe to YouTube Premium. And I think that raises the bigger question is what else are they going to start putting behind that paywall so they get more subscribers? Uh, you know, YouTube Premium has about 50 million uh, subscribers, but that's peanuts compared to Netflix that has 220 million, and Spotify has about 188 million. So it's going to be interesting to see, is this the beginning of the end of the free YouTube as we know it? What else are they going to start putting behind that paywall? Hmm. Well, he's done it all for us, covered a lot of ground. In the meantime, go get some Robitussin or some Buckley's. <laughs> Tastes awful, but it works, Mike. Uh, I hope you Thanks feel better. So much. All right.
That's Mike Yanni. We call him the Gadget Guy. You can find out more about what he does online at Gadget Guy Mike. And, of course, on his YouTube channel, search Gadget Guy Mike Yanni.